Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. After a couple of weeks of not being here, um, we, uh, we were on holidays over Easter, oh, just we had a short holiday, so we missed two weeks ago, and then last week, uh, obviously, we missed because of Anzac Day Parade, so uh, great to see a bunch of you over at Mackenzie. Last week, I had the joy of preaching and kicking off a new teaching series at Mackenzie last Sunday morning, and looking forward to jump, jumping into that in just a moment and orienting us all into that. Um, but uh, it's good to be back and it's good to be with you. Just want to say we're kind of new in this whole kind of ticketing situation as well. So uh, hopefully you're all figuring it out. I know uh, we've, we've got a few teething issues. So well done. You can choose your own seats. There were some questions around that. Uh, when you go to the to your bookings page, you just select different seats, delete your allocated seats. But um, if you want to be allocated, that is fine. It is great to have people sitting down the front because that's where you get allocated. And as we all know... As we all know, there is a greater blessing in the first three rows. Uh, you, will walk, you will walk away with just an extra special touch uh, today. Uh, we just, uh, no extra charge either. In, in fact, it's a little cheaper down the front as well. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Uh, um, anyway, anyway, so I don't, I, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, I just needed to say that. So if you do have any queries or questions, do ask me, but we are, we are figuring it out and it is great to ha- be having more people uh, in the room. Uh, as, I, as I said before, we kicked off a series last week called A Better Story, A Better Story. And we're going to be journeying through the story that we as Christians, those of us here, uh, who are in the Christian faith, we have been invited into uh, and get to participate in a better story. And maybe you're here and you, you'd say you're not a Christian. And uh, great to have you. My encouragement is to, to keep coming along with us as, uh, as you hear about what the Christian faith is and what the story is that, that the Christian faith invites us, that God invites us into. It is, I believe, a better story. And are we going to be looking at different stories because stories matter. Stories matter because the stories we believe about ourselves deeply shape and inform who we are. The stories we believe about ourselves tell us the decisions we make, the people we spend time with, and more importantly, the stories we believe about ourselves tell us what we believe brings us hope, meaning, purpose, love, Redemption, salvation. The stories we believe about ourselves matter. And we are surrounded in a society filled with stories. In fact, we live in a society, a secular society that embraces and tells us a whole range of different little micro stories. In fact, we're invited to live our own story. I'd say that our story, the secular narrative, which we are all impacted by, and I would say infected by both inside and outside the church, we're impacted by an individualistic, consumeristic narrative. You've heard me talk about this before if you've been coming to the church, but we live in a hyper-individualistic, hyper-consumeristic society. It's all about me, And it's all about what I can get. It's all about what I can experience. That is the narrative that we are invited to live. And if we're honest, it's one that we do believe. But as we look at this narrative, as we look at the secular story, we can see that it is failing, if we're really honest. By a whole range of different metrics, we can see that the secular narrative is failing. We see anxiety On the increase, we see greater levels of isolation and loneliness. We're seeing increasing suicide rates. We're seeing the increase in depression and a whole bunch of other health uh, statistics that are telling us that in that realm, it's failing. But we're also seeing a society that is more and more broken, more and more fractured. The utopian hope of living this individualistic, consumeristic life is failing. And we as Christians, we're invited into a better story. 
And we need to remind ourselves that we are part of a better narrative, a better script, a better story. It's a story of wonder, of power, of grace, of love, of redemption and salvation. And we kicked it off last week by looking at creation. We're going to continue this this story over the coming weeks as we map the grand story that we're all invited into. It's ultimately a story of love, of God wanting to be present with his people. We're all part of a better story. Are you ready to continue that story? I hope you are because today we're looking at sin. Come on. We get to come to church just to hear how bad we all are. You may have, if you're, if you're not part of the church, you know, this may be your stereotypical view of church. So uh, I'm not apologetic today because actually understanding this part of the narrative gives us a great understanding of who we are and why we are. The theological term for the story, this part of the story is called the fall, where we look at sin. Last week, we looked at creation. We're created, in the Christian narrative, we're created on purpose. We're created with design. We're created with identity. That we've been given an identity. We don't need to perform our identity. We are created in the image of God. You and I are created in the Imago Dei, the image of the divine. That is our identity. We don't need to perform our identity. Sets us free from that. And thirdly, we've been created for relationship. We've been created for loving presence. God has created us for community. Community with him and community with one another. But there is something that is lost in the fall. And the great story that we're part of is copied by many stories today. You watch many movies today, you read many books, and it kind of starts with this innocence, this, this wonderful place where things are all good and well with the world, like Hobbiton or whatever it is. And then something happens, something changes, an incident happens, and the narrative shifts. Evil is brought into the world, and we see this in the grand story, the narrative that we find ourselves in, the biblical story, and it's the fall. And so we're going to read it today because it's going to say something deeply about who we are and why it matters. But before we jump into that, I want to look at how we're going to journey through this. We're going to look at three things that sin does. Firstly, we're going to look at the symptoms of sin the source of sin, and the solution to sin. Now, I'm aware that I'm going to be stepping in dangerous ground right now when I use a medical analogy because I'm standing in a church that is full of doctors, nurses, therapists, and other medical professionals. But I think that there is something about the narratives of sin that parallels nicely to health because uh, there is this process of identifying symptoms, identifying the source or a diagnosis, and then a solution that works its way out in the medical field. And so I'm going to invite, where's PJ? I need PJ. Why don't you give PJ a huge hand because he needs a lot of help. I am going to be the GP today, which is slightly dangerous. See, we are, we, grab a seat in my office, please, PJ. See, someone presents themselves, we all, we all present ourselves at a doctor when there is a symptom, where, it, where there is a problem. You have to acknowledge that something's wrong. So we may feel pain, we may feel an ache, something might not be normal, there might be something that's a little different, something that has changed, there is a symptom that causes us to go to the doctor. And we go to the doctor so that they can tell us what the source of the symptom is, or to use another word, diagnosis. Now, diagnosis means the process of determining the nature of a disease or disorder and distinguishing it from other possible conditions. And there are tools that that are used by medical practitioners to diagnose the symptoms and find the source of the pain. So... 
I use PJ because I know he spends a lot of time in doctors because he rides his scooters ridiculously fast and has crashes. Sorry, PJ. So if PJ presented with chest pains, then me, the doctor, would probably use the tool of a stethoscope to just check and see whether actually PJ has a heart. <laughs> I can't hear one. PJ, how are you even alive? Not quite, mate, you do have a heart. I found it there. It's a diagnostic tool. Now, if, if you had blood pressure problems, you know, you, your, your heart starts to beat a little bit faster like PJ's is, I, I, I heard it, then you would use, what are they called, mano... mano yep, that, I wasn't even close. <laughs> and you pump it up and you get it. I'm not going to do the whole way because your arms aren't that big, um, but it's a, and it's got a leak to it. It's a sphygmomanometer. Is that right? Yeah, that, that. And you'd be able to tell blood pressure. If you came in feeling hot, then a doctor would check your temperature. That, you know, I'm not going to put it right in your ear because I don't want to give you an ear infection because if you had a sore ear, then you would have one of these, which is a... Yep. And you would look in the ear to see if there was lots of wax there. <laughs> Can't see a brain either, PJ. <laughs> my bro this is my brother-in-law's GP bag, by the way. He gave me a tuning fork, which, I, I, which is... And apparently this, this just helps to see if people can hear. Uh, and it's also a good tune, PJ. It's kind of... Stung, <laughs> Plus there's a whole bunch of other diagnostics here. There's, there's a reflex hammer. Just in case you break your elbow, you can give it a good whack just to see if you've got reflux. I won't do that. Why don't you give PJ a huge hand for coming into my doctor's surgery today. Don't ever come and see. You've probably seen. You never want me treating you or diagnosing your issues. But we are given a whole bunch of diagnostics to look at the symptoms, to find the source of the pain, and then thirdly, to provide a solution. That's why we go to the doctors, right? Ultimately, we want a solution to our pain. We want them to write out a script or they, you, you want them to give you something so that you can get better. Now, going to the doctor is normally the right thing to do, but, but sometimes we don't do that. There's two dangers in response to the symptoms that I am certainly guilty of. The first wrong response is to ignore the symptoms. You kind of feel something and you go, oh, it'll go away. It's nothing. I'm sure it'll just sort itself out. Is anyone, men and women, guilt, well, women as well, guilty? Normally it's men. Every, yeah, there's a bunch of you. I've got to say, I'm guilty of this when it comes to dental work. I hate going to the dentist. And so if I feel something in my mouth, my tooth, oh, it's nothing. It's, it'll go away. We know the problem with ignoring, don't we? Ignoring the symptoms, it doesn't go away. It just gets worse. I remember going on holiday to New Zealand with the family a few years ago. I had a sore tooth, but I ignored it until we got to New Zealand. I don't know if it was a flight or whatever, but I had a throbbing head. It ruined my whole holiday. I found myself sitting in this beautiful dentist chair overlooking Queenstown and the beautiful lake with a dentist drilling in my head. It was a, a moment of dissonance as I was suffering whilst looking out at the beauty and then handing over much of my money. Ignoring the symptoms is not a good response. The other thing that we sometimes do is we're ignorant. We actually think we can sort out the situation by ourselves. Anyone guilty of consulting Dr. Google? <laughs> I do it all the time. Oh, I felt something, particularly, you know, with exercise. Oh, that, oh, I don't need to go see a physio. I've got Google. And so I'll try and sort it, and I'm never right. Is he in the front row as a physio? I have to go and talk to people. Physio's about a month later after things have got worse rather than better when I thought that I'd actually diagnose the problem. See, we are often ignorant 
when we look at the symptoms. See, when we're presented with a symptom, the danger is of ignoring and misdiagnosing the issue. And it's the same with sin. See, both inside and outside the church, we have a problem in diagnosing and treating the symptoms of sin. The problem is that we have not in our secular or Christian settings properly defined. So the problem is that we have not properly defined and therefore diagnosed the disease of sin. And what's really interesting as we jump into this diagnostic tool this morning of Genesis chapter 3, there is a striking resemblance between the narrative in the Christian story and the narrative that we are experiencing today. So we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you open up and we're going to read Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. The words are going to come up on the screen behind me as well. Let's read this together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We see here in this story the source and the symptoms of the rebellion of sin. Firstly, we see the source of sin, which is a rejection of authority and an embracing of the autonomous self, the embracing of autonomy. And we see it here in Scripture. Firstly, we see that sin is a rejection of God's authority. And it's done in two ways here. Firstly, it's a rejection of God's word. And secondly, and as a result, it's a rejection of God's character. When God's word is challenged, so God's character is questioned. We see here that, that Eve steps into a conversation with the devil. And the devil comes and questions God's word. Did God really say? And then he adds a little bit more information later on, a little bit like a dodgy salesman and says, you will not certainly die contravening and contradicting God's word. But Eve, rather than rejecting this conversation at the outset, not going, listen, I'm not gonna have this conversation. Eve enters into the narrative. She enters into the conversation. She enters into, she buys into this questioning process. And what we see in Eve's response is a distortion of God's word. We see firstly as she responds in an answer to the snake, she actually misrepresents God's word, God's command. She says firstly, well firstly she omits God's word. God says you are free, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Eve misses out the word free. She downplays God's word. She omits God's word. Then she adds to God's word by saying, oh, we, we cannot eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and we must not touch it. She omits to God's word. She adds to God's word and therefore she changes God's word. God's word, God's word is challenged. It's distorted. 
and therefore God's character is questioned. There's something really interesting I picked up on this last week as we spoke about creation there. There is no distinction between God's word and his action. When you question God's word, you are questioning his action. When God speaks, so he does. And so often we're invited to question or we, we find ourselves questioning God's promises. We were doing that today as we were worshiping. We were reminding ourselves of God's promises. God has spoken. But so often we misrepresent God. And in doing so, we, we question his character. We question his personhood. Is God trustworthy? Is God really good? We do this in our hearts. We do it to others and we do it to God. It's easier to reject someone. It's easier to reject someone if we can justify it through character assassination. We discredit people's word by discredit, discrediting their character. You see, the source of sin as we journey through this story, and we are flipping it up a little bit, the narrative, we're going to the source because we're, we're following the journey of this story. We're going to the source as it's presented, and then we'll get to the symptoms. The first source of sin is a rejection of God's authority. Eve and Adam do that, but on the other hand, they embrace autonomy or they embrace the authentic self. See, what sin does is it places us at the center. It places us as king of our lives. In verse five, the promise to Eve is that you will be like God. Who doesn't want to be like God? Adam and Eve want to be their own king. They want to be the master of their own story. They want to tell their own story. John Tyson says that sin, he defines sin as the sovereignty of self. Martin Luther says that sin is one turned in on themselves, one turned in on oneself. That is what sin does. It embraces the self. It embraces autonomy and it seeks to tell its own self story. And what it also does, and we see here in, the, in this story, is that it affirms the desire. It affirms our desires. Desires are seen to be virtuous and righteous. They're seen then to be ultimate. So we read in verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She was obedient to her desires because her desires validated what she wanted to do. And so Eve and Adam, because Adam is there, validate or believe their own narrative. If it feels good, then it must be right. If it tastes good, it must be true. Adam and Eve are their own self-authoring, expressive self. And it leads to chaos. It leads to death. And I know you're sitting here and you're going, hang on, that sounds like our world today. And that's because it is. See, the secular script celebrates these two things as well. It rejects authority and it embraces autonomy, the authentic self. See, to experience freedom and happiness, so the script today goes, we must throw away anything, any power structure, any claim, any, any overarching narrative, whether that be political, religious, or traditional, that imposes itself on our own self-expression. This includes the concept, the idea, the traditional idea of sin. There is no sin in our secular script today. As Brian Appleyard, the journalist says, sin doesn't really exist as a serious idea in modern life. And as a result, this rejection of sin has led to the understanding of sin at all to be an offensive idea. This idea of sin just leads to bad self-esteem. It's not good for the self, because remember, the self is ultimate. We're to embrace the authentic self. Authenticity is the mantra of the age. To live our best life, we must create our own truth, celebrate our unfettered feelings and desires, and curate our own authentic story. It's interesting that the word authentic comes from the Greek word authenteo or authentine, 
And the definition of that word is one who with his own hands kills another or himself, one who acts on his own authority or autocratic, and to govern or exercise dominion over one. That's authenticity. See, authenticity, when you go down to the root word, is to reject the other at all cost, to reject the other so that the self may be promoted, so that the self may rule, so that the self may have dominion. It's the elevation of self over the other and therefore the rejection of the other. And we are our own gods. That's what the secular script tells us. And we're living our own truth. Alan Mann, in his excellent book, Atonement in the Sinless Age, writes this. If sin exists at all, we encounter it only when we fail to devote ourselves to the project of self-realisation. Our pursuit of self-awareness, self-esteem, wholeness and well-being is paramount. To be self-centred is a 21st century virtue, for no other can be trusted to bring the good life we crave. One who fails at project self, a failure defined by the individual's own ideas of success based upon cultural and social influences, must gaze into the mirror and confess, against you alone have I sinned. We live in a self-obsessed culture. The thing is, our obedience to these desires is leading us enslaved to our desires. And so Paul writes, as he reflects on this passage in Genesis chapter three, at the beginning of Romans chapter one, as he maps out his better story, which is the book of Romans. He writes this in verse 21 onwards of chapter one, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. There is a turning inwards on creation. Therefore, God gave them over to their desires, their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God, the truth that we're created in the image of God, created for relationship, for a lie, and worshipped and served themselves and created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. See, the result of rejecting authority, the result of rejecting God and embracing self-autonomy leads to profound and devastating consequences. In this Genesis account, we see that there are immediate consequences to sin. The symptoms of sin are observable. And those symptoms are shame, blame, and death. The symptoms of sin that we see here in this passage are shame, blame, and death. Firstly, shame. What's the immediate response when God comes down and they realize that they are naked and ashamed? They cover themselves up and they go and hide. They cover their nakedness. Intimacy, intimacy, true intimacy has been lost. They cover themselves up from one another and they go and they hide from God. They are filled with shame. Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist, written a great book called The Soul of Shame, writes this. He says, we are storytellers. We yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty. And this is the echo of God's intention. We long for our stories to be about joy, not just reflections of what we believe, but of who we are, who we long to be. It's this yearning for creation, the Imago Day. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. See, we see that shame enters the world as a result of sin. We need to understand that there's a difference between shame and guilt. See, guilt says, I have done something bad. When we recognise that we have done something bad, it, it normally moves us towards the other. Oh, I've, I've done something. I, that guilt, that pain, I need to sort that out. What shame says, shame says, I am bad. I am bad. And it moves us away from the other. As we see in the garden, shame stops intimacy. It pushes us, pushes us away from God and others, leading to, 
isolation. We feel shame. Adam and Eve feel shame. And when we feel shame and we see this with Adam and Eve, there is a move then to push the other away. Shame hides us away, but then it it seeks to project sin on the other. We seek to blame. And so we see this, this funny dialogue going when God comes down and has a conversation with Adam and Eve. He goes to Adam. See, Adam, why are you hiding? Did you, Adam, you've been caught out. Did you eat from that fruit, from the tree in the middle of the garden? And Adam's response is our response. The woman you put here with me, she made me do it. Here's what, this is amazing. The first response is to blame God. God, it's your fault. You're the one who put the woman here. You're to blame. God, when I experience this pain and this shame, it's not my fault. Oh no, God, it's, it's your fault. And then he goes on and he blames the other. Eve, it's your fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. It's other people's fault. The thing is, we, we should have picked this up in the story. Where was Adam did this whole time? He wasn't off playing sport or watching sport. He was in the garden, standing right next to Eve, watching the whole thing unfold. See, Eve is engaging in the conversation with the devil, the snake. But Adam is standing right next to her, remaining silent, doing nothing, and I'll have a bit of that fruit, please. Our natural response when we feel shame is to not take it on for ourselves, but to blame the other. And as we see, as sin is introduced, there's shame, there's blame, and then there's death. In the curses at the end, God says to Adam, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. I mean, he said, if you eat from the fruit, you will die. And death is introduced into the world. Sin is a curse. Sin leads to death. Or to see it in another way, sin is a disease that infects us. It infects all of us. This is an archetypal story that, that we see our first parents where sin has started and it works its way down through the generations. Sin is a generational curse. It is a generational genetic disease that we are all infected by. It's really interesting that uh, some psychiatrists say that shame is taken on from a very young age before pre memory, very young. Guilt is formed in the ages from four to six, but shame comes a little bit, much before then. What's interesting about that is it almost speaks to this idea that sin is being passed on, shame is being passed on from generation to generation to generation, and it leads to death. As Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. And as we look at our world today, we see that same narrative at play. It's a narrative that is not necessarily embraced, but it's a narrative that is pushed under the carpet. It is something that it is ignored or at least misdiagnosed. Shame, blame, and ultimately death. See, the thing with sin in our secular world is that it's both rejected and embraced. You know, the problem with our world today is that sin, throughout the generations, is that sin feels good. I mean, it feels good to throw off the the shackles and just step into that thing that, that our desires want. It feels good. And in our world today, that's celebrated, that feeling of breaking off authority and breaking off shackles, that feels good. And we watch movies and we we watch Netflix and we read stories and you get this picture often of, of freedom being stepped into and the shackles being thrown off and we all go, yeah, that's that's awesome. But we never track to the end of the story. We never get to see the fruit of those decisions. 
And in fact, our culture is now beginning to realise the fruit of those decisions because sin, leading our own way, living our own way leads to death. And we see it. We live in a culture of shame. Shame is all around us. Again, Kurt Thompson in his book on shame writes this. No matter what initially brings them to see me as a psychiatrist, their stories eventually lead to the moment when what I believe to be the lowest common denominator in human relationships makes its way into the room. It matters not if, a, if the person earns a two-comma salary or works for minimum wage. She may be married or single. He may be African-American or Caucasian. Depressed, anxious or plain angry. Happy, sad or indifferent. He may be the father or the son, the employer or employee. It may be an individual, a couple, family, community, school or business organisation and you needn't have ever darkened the office door of a psychiatrist. It doesn't require the breakdown of our mental health to be plagued with it. It only requires that you have a pulse. To be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. We all live with it. We all live with shame. It's everywhere. How do we deal with it in our society? Oh, we cover it up. We're very good at that. We live in a fake culture that just seeks to put on an exterior. We do it all the time. We dress ourselves up. Social media is horrible for it. We just present ourselves in a different way. Everything's okay here. Another snap. We're all doing good, got nothing to worry about. Life is going great. We surround ourselves with a nice house or a nice car. We pursue a career or success. And the whole time we are shielding ourselves from the reality that is on the inside, the shame that we all carry. We all carry shame. And what we do is we protect ourselves, we hide ourselves, and we blame others. See, we live in a world which refuses to take responsibility for anything. Why? Because we're living our own truth. We're telling our own truth. That's my story. I didn't sin. It's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's problem. It's the system. It's those powers, it's the government, it's something else, but it ain't me. We live in a world of blame and ultimately we see, let's be honest, as we look at our society today, we see death. We can't have conversations anymore. We actually, we actually don't know how to, to show dignity to the other anymore. And I'm sure you, like me, despair as you look on social media or even as you just look at media general or you sit in the workroom or at schools or university. There is an incapacity to be able to dialogue and to do relationship well. Relationships are disintegrating under the weight of shame and blame that our society celebrates. It's not working. Our culture is not and cannot treat the problems of sin. It doesn't have the mechanics to do so. Rather than putting the fire out, it is throwing gasoline on it. And because our secular world has not diagnosed the issues, it cannot provide an appropriate solution. We will continue on this track until we burn out. But acknowledging sin is the first step towards a solution and the Christian story is a better story. Why? Because it looks sin in the eye. It confronts sin and therefore it enables a path towards freedom. See, the solution to sin is actually found in vulnerability. It's found in relationship. It's found in taking responsibility rather than blaming. And it's found in repentance. Relationship is really difficult because it requires vulnerability. True relationship is the antithesis of shame Vulnerability is what is required if we are to step into true relationship. Vulnerability is the antithesis of shame. One says, I need. Vulnerability says, I need. 
The other says, I rule. It's becoming naked, not physically, but it's becoming naked emotionally with the other and saying, this is who I am. That is the antithesis of shame. The amazing thing is is that that's what we're created for. See, God created us, we see here, to be in relationship. In fact, God creating us was a step of vulnerability. God saying, you know what, I'm gonna create humanity and I am going to give them the option to choose me or not to choose me. That's vulnerability. To say I can be rejected, I could be rejected is a place of stepping into relationship and stepping into a world of possibility and possibility for hurt. But that is the only way that we can move from shame to healing. It's into relationship. It's into relationship. And, and church, if we are gonna know true healing, I want you to grab hold of this. We need to be a church that does relationship well, that mirrors the image of God, that looks at others and says, I see you in the image of God. That is why we have life groups. Megan spoke about that before. That is why we create communities. I mean, coming to church is great. That's wonderful. But, but you can't do vulnerability. You can't find, find a way out of shame by just rocking up to church once a week. It's actually finding yourself in a, a small group of people and choosing to say, I am going to step out here. I'm actually going to put it out there. I am going to be vulnerable. But it is the way to freedom. It is the way away from shame. We are invited into radical relationship because that is what we were created for. Secondly, we're created, the way out out of sin is to take responsibility rather than blame. There's something about taking responsibility that speaks to our intrinsic value. Actually, sin, the acknowledgement of sin. I want to push against the secular idea that this is bad for our self-esteem. I want to say that acknowledging sin is actually vital in understanding who we are. See, to acknowledge sin and the depth of its ramifications is to acknowledge the depth of value that God places on relationship. Sin is not a devaluing concept that deprives us of self-esteem. Quite the opposite. It is to embrace the fact that we have lost something that was deeply meaningful, deeply profound, of intrinsic value and worth. To take responsibility is to acknowledge our humanity. And when we take responsibility, we step into what it means to be truly human. If we're to find a better story, we must first need to accept what we have lost. That is the heartbeat to every great story. Failure, tragedy, Loss, redemption. When we acknowledge sin, we understand what has been lost. We understand the value that God speaks over us. I want to say too, as a bit of a side point, that many people look at the pain and suffering of this world and and seek to blame God. Why God? And, And it's probably one of the primal questions of every human person. But what I want to say is when we have an understanding of sin, when we understand the story and the brokenness and why we walk through what we walk through, when we have a working understanding of sin, it helps us to understand why. It helps us to understand why we find ourselves in the place we're in, why we experience brokenness in all its level. Sin is in our world and that is why we walk through suffering. But the good news is that there is hope. And we see hope in this Genesis story. There is hope for grace. There's hope for grace. I love that that God, right at the end of this chapter three, I didn't read it, but at the end of of where we got to, then God kind of delivers the reality. Well, these are the consequences of sin. They're called the curses. We've spoken a bit about them. But that's not the final act in this story. The final act is one of grace and hope. We read that in verse 20, uh, God says, the Lord God, in verse 21, sorry, the Lord God made garments of sin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. 
God kills an animal. A sacrifice is made. Clothing skin, its skin is taken from the animal and it's placed over Adam and Eve. God gives them a gift. A sacrifice is made and a gift is made. I believe that this is a pointing towards, and there's another part which I'll point to in a moment, a pointing to grace. We see in the curses that are given that God speaks to the, to, to the snake and says that, that there is a point, there is, there is a hope here. In Genesis chapter three, and here's the other thing of pointing to a saviour. I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In Genesis chapter three, in that passage, I believe, and many theologians would agree, that this is pointing, pointing ahead to a time where Jesus will come and strike the heel, will kill, destroy. Sorry, the snake will strike the heel of Jesus. But, but God will destroy evil. God will destroy the snake. See, there is hope. There is hope. At the end of this story, there is grace. And God is saying, I am going to make a way. I'm going to make a way from you. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. And so we find ourselves now, and I can't, it's hard to land in sin, right? Like I'm finding it hard to kind of go, go away next week, it's going to get better. We're going to land, we're going to land in, a, in, a, in a place of hope because that's where this passage lands us. I want to say, finally, as we take responsibility for our sin, as we get a glimpse of grace, we're invited into a place of repentance. And as we repent, we can know that there will be grace and love for us. That is the great story. That is the great hope. As Mark Sayers says, the pastor, a pastor down in Melbourne, he says, every renewal and revival begins with people who reach such a moment, who truly come to the end of themselves, discovering the depth of their own sin and the immensity of a holy God who is intent on removing rebellion, evil and ill from the world, yet who sent his son to die upon the cross to invite us to be on his side of remaking the world. Repentance, if we get hold of this, Repentance is the way in which we remake the world. We invite God back into our story. There's a, there's a great practice that we as a church get to participate in. I've got to say that, that sometimes as a church, we don't celebrate communion like we should. Jesus gave us this. Jesus gave us a reminder of what he has done for us. See, there is redemption. There is redemption. And Jesus gathers with his disciples. You know the story. Before he dies, he gathers with his disciples and he, he, he repurposes the Passover, which was the practice of Israel. And he says, this is now my body. This is now my blood. Remember it. This practice is deeply formative for us as we tell the story as we remind ourselves of the story that we are part of. See, the ultimate death is made by Jesus. It's pointed to in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, that God has a plan for redemption, and that plan is himself. It's Jesus Christ. That is the story. And as we take communion together, we are reminding ourselves of the story that we are part of. As we drink the grape juice, as we take the wafer, we are reminding ourselves of the death of Christ, the blood spilt for our sins, for our brokenness, the disease that has worked its way through. As we take the bread, we're reminded of the body that was broken for us. But here's the thing. This is the other beautiful thing about communion that speaks to the symptom the source and the solution. So this is a reconnection back into relationship. We get to do it together. We get to do it as a family. And we do it in vulnerability. And so often I'm guilty of just taking communion and going, yeah, that's just another thing that we, we just go through the motions. We just go through the practice. Yeah, we've done that. But this is so rich. Jesus didn't give it. We got to understand, Jesus didn't give us too many things to do. He gave us a few commissions and commandments. 
and he gave us communion. We embed our story in the story of the church and the story of redemption as we take this. What I love us to do as we, as we do this, and we're gonna finish in worship, we're gonna land in just a moment, we're gonna finish by taking communion and worshiping. But what I'd love for you to do is if you feel comfortable, let me invite you just to do something that speaks of vulnerability. Now, I realise that we're all jammed in here and the chairs are uh, quite close together. But if you are able to and you're willing, I would love to invite you to kneel. When we kneel, that's a place of vulnerability. Kneeling is a place where you can't fight from. Kneeling is a place of saying, I'm not in control. Kneeling is a place of saying, I'm not fighting for myself. Kneeling is saying, God, I'm vulnerable. God, I need you. And as we take the communion elements today in our own time, I'm gonna invite you just to do your own journey. Where have you believed the secular story? Where, where, where are you living your own individualistic journey? Where is shame in, in your life? And maybe today you need to make a decision of going, I need to run back into community. I need to run back into relationship. I need connection. So as you do that, as you find yourself on your knees, if that's what you wanna do, or sitting or however you wanna do that, take some time before. Don't just rush to take communion this morning, but to stop, pause, remember what God has done for you. Receive His grace. Allow His Spirit to work in your heart and take and feed on the life that comes from the death and the resurrection of our God. The team are gonna sing over us just in your own time. Let's do this together. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, we would love to encourage you on your journey. Help us help you by going to gatewaybaptist.com.au and clicking on Get Connected.